Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Good afternoon, church, and welcome, Uh, especially if this is your first time worshiping with us. uh, We just want to welcome you here today to New Life Fellowship. Uh, My name is Eric uh, Noah. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I just have the privilege of bringing you God's word today. Uh, You know, today we uh, are coming to one of the last, uh, next week will be our last last, but this is the second to last in our sermon series called Devoted. Uh, For the last eight weeks or so, we've been talking about how the early church uh, devoted itself to just enjoying the gospel. And for the first five sermons or so, we just talked about that, how they enjoyed the gospel, how they just loved uh, hearing about the gospel and praying through the gospel and, and really enjoying that fellowship that they had with one another. And then in the last five weeks uh, here now, we're talking about how they lived in light of that gospel truth. You see, when you live in light of the gospel, you don't live like normal people do. You don't live like the culture does. You don't live like the world does. You live in a dramatically different countercultural way. And and they lived radically different. I mean, they shared everything they had. They praised God even though they were being persecuted. They had joy in their hearts even though uh, there was so much suffering happening in the early church. I mean, they lived radically, radically different. And because of that difference in their lives, they were actually found to have favor, it says, with all people. And we're getting this from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, where it says that they were doing all these things, enjoying the gospel, living in light of that gospel, and then they found having favor with all people. Meaning that atheists, uh, people of different races and religions and ethnicities were all, even though they disagreed with the tenets of Christianity, they actually found the people to be irresistible because they had joy, because they loved each other, because they were generous, because they were helping those who were in need. Because of all of these things, they actually found favor in the eyes of everybody around them. And isn't that such a beautiful picture, especially in our, uh, in our society where, you know, left is separated from Right? Where if you disagree with somebody's ideas, well, you're disagreeing with them as an entire person. Isn't that such a beautiful picture of how the church should be? And today, that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about how we have favor, not just with other Christians, but with all peoples. So today, we're going to be looking at two passages. Uh, we're going to be touching them on both very lightly. Uh, but for the first passage, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading 13 to 16, a very short passage. Uh, and then right after that, I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. So Matthew 5, 13 to 16, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 to 23. Uh, I'll go ahead and read both passages for, for us. So if at this time, if you're able to, would you rise with me as we read God's word together? Again, I'll read Matthew 5 first, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 9 right after. I'll pray for us if you could remain standing during that time, and then, um, and then I'll seat you afterwards. This is Jesus talking. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 19 to 23 now. This is Paul speaking, the Apostle Paul. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. 
To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask for your help right now. Lord, this is a difficult message uh, for me, uh, and I know for our congregation, Lord, today to really swallow. And so, Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your guidance. We pray for your grace and for your mercy. We pray, Lord, that ultimately you would be the one that's glorified in our presence today. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you be seated? So as usual, I have three points. Uh, The first point is the desirability of salt and light. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, the desirability of salt and light. Uh, The second is our directions for being salt and light. So we'll talk very practically about how you can actually go about being salt and light in your workplaces, in your family. And the third is defining the true source of our salt and light. Uh, Because where do we get the power to do these things? Where do we get the motivation? How do we actually uh, live lives uh, as, as salt and light? So let's move to our first point, the desirability of salt and light. You know, if you've grown up in the church, you've, you've probably come across this passage or even the language of this passage. And one of the reasons why this passage, in my opinion, is so famous is because of its ease of understanding. Right? It's such a simple illustration. It's such a simple concept. And basically what Jesus is saying, you don't need a theological degree. You don't need a math degree. You don't need a science degree. You don't need any sorts of degrees. If you know how to read, you can probably understand this passage, which is this. Jesus is calling each and every Christian to be salt and light in the world. Jesus is calling you to influence people to him. It's that simple. And yet, in my opinion, in my own life, this is probably one of the most neglected practices of my own life. That we aren't salt and light. That the church has become, uh, in some ways, salty less and, and really put under a bowl to be hidden from. We don't shine the light of Christ. We don't, we're not salty in our culture, in our workplaces. Now, here's the issue. The reason why I think that we don't share the love of Christ. The reason why we don't influence people to Christ is very simple. And, I, and I'll talk about it in a second. But here's, here's one of the reasons why, okay? It's this word that you'll see right here. It's difficult. Is it not? Isn't that so difficult to influence people for Christ? I mean, every time, even the word evangelism, even the word proselytizing, like, it's just, oh, I don't want to do it. Why? Because it's difficult. Let me list out three reasons why I think in my own personal life, to be honest with you, this is, these are personal reasons, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm guessing that they reflect your personal reasons as well. But here why, for me, it's difficult sharing the gospel. The first is because our society has relegated religion to the private sphere only. Our society has relegated religion to the private sphere and not to the public sphere. Let me explain. Uh, have you ever been to a Thai restaurant or a Vietnamese restaurant or an Indian restaurant or maybe even a Chinese restaurant, okay? If you go into a restaurant like this, they will sometimes, um, actually a lot of times, have their religion as a part of their restaurant. You will see the gods that they worship. They will have a statue of Vishnu or Buddha or, or whatever, what have you. They'll have places of worship, incense burning in the restaurants, right? And the reason why I mention this is because that's how all of history was. Okay, all of history, there was no segregation between your public life and your private life. There was only one life, and that's how it existed. It was like your workplace and your religion all flowed into one another. And for us, when you step into a Vietnamese, Chinese, uh, Thai, or Indian restaurant, it doesn't weird you out that their gods are on display. Why? Because it's just a part of what you've known. 
And in the same way, that's how our entire history of the world was. All of life was one, except when you get to the modern era. In the modern era is when we begin to separate private life to public life. And that's why you can't go into your board meeting and say, hey, everybody, let's pray. Let's pray to Jesus. Let's pray in Christ's name. You can't pray before your meetings. You can't tell people about why. Because it's socially not acceptable to do that. Because what you do in your private life is left there only. You can only do it in your private life. Don't bring it to the secular world. Don't bring it to the public sphere. The only thing allowed in public areas are what are objective truths that we all agree upon. This is why politics, religion is, is segregated out to your own private personal sphere. And if you ever bring it into the public sphere, you're ridiculed, mocked, or, or sometimes judged for bringing your personal life into the public arena. And this is why for me, it's, it's hard. It's hard to begin even having that conversation of what I believe in. Who is my God? Who do I worship? Because oftentimes religion is something you do in your private life. It's great. It gives you peace, joy, happiness, but leave it there. There's a second reason I believe uh, I have a hard time with sharing the gospel is because we feel like we don't have enough knowledge. You know, I, I know I have a degree from a seminary. I have a master's of divinity, whatever that means. Uh, you know, I've studied the Bible for many years. And even though I have all this knowledge, uh, uh, a lot of times I feel insufficient when I share my faith. And it's not because I don't know the gospel. I know for many of you, if you call yourselves a Christian, you know the gospel. Where the gospel is, I'm a sinner, I'm saved by Jesus Christ's blood on the cross, and because of that, he's the way, truth, and life, and because of that, I have access to the Father now. I get to go to heaven, I get to be with him, I get to pray to him, I get to enjoy all these benefits because of Christ's blood uh, and work on the cross. Right? That's the gospel, it's simple, it's easy. But where you and I get tripped up is when people ask us the objections to Christianity. We're like, why is Jesus so exclusive? Why is he the only way, the truth, and the life? Why can't there be other ways? Right, why, why can marriage be only between one man and one woman? Why, why, can't, why can't you uh, uh, have sex outside of the confines of marriage? Why is this the only way that, you, uh, that, that sexuality should be presented in and of itself? And there are so many questions, and we don't know how to answer them. We don't know how to answer these objections to Christianity. And so what we do is we don't even begin talking about it. Because we don't want to enter into that realm where we have no idea what we're about to enter. Here's the third reason. Uh, and I think, uh, th you know, it's, it's because when people, uh, this is primarily of North America and Europe, but here's what I think, okay? And again, this is not the fault of our culture or of us. It's just what it is, in my opinion. You can point fingers, you can blame, but this is just what I think it is, okay? When I talk about Christianity, when I say the name of Jesus, I don't think about the grace and the love and the mercy that he has to offer. I think of this. Right? When people in the West think of Christianity, they think of homophobic, transphobic, narrow-minded, sexually prude, morally oppressive, suck the fun out of everything, judgmental conservatives. Is that not the case? See, this is why I don't open up my mouth because I'm like, if I say Jesus, I don't think of the cross, I don't think the resurrection, I don't think of grace, I don't think of mercy, I don't think of love, I don't think of him uh, uh, transforming your life from the inside out, I don't think of a life abundant, I think of this. And I'm like, am I inviting people to this? Because I don't want to invite people to this. And by the way, if you're a Christian in here, we're not about this. We're not homophobic. We're not transphobic. Yes, we believe certain things about sexual attraction and orientation, but that does not mean we hate or fear people. We're, we, we, we're not narrow-minded. Christianity gives us the tools to actually be able to handle people who disagree with us, to be open-minded about other ideas while, while maintaining our love and affections for them. We're not sexually prude or morally oppressive. We just believe that God knows us. He set boundaries around us because he knows us. He made us. And therefore, if we follow him in these boundaries, we can actually have the most fun. 
Right? Think about football with no rules. That would be the worst football in the world. Think about dodgeball with no rules. Right? You guys have probably played dodgeball with no rules. It's chaos. It sucks. Right? Rules and boundaries give us the ability to actually have fun in that context, to actually live out our fullest lives. Uh, Jesus, of course, we talked about this, does not suck the fun out of everything. He brings us joy. He brings us praise. He brings us all these things. And so we know it's not true. And yet when we invite people into Christianity, we feel like we're inviting them to this. And this is why for me, I don't begin opening up my mouth. See, for me, I enjoy people. I enjoy giving people good news about, Christ, uh, about uh, just good news in general, don't you? Right? We enjoy giving people good news. I love giving people good news. So I, as soon as I found out that my wife was pregnant with our first son, I was like, hey, I went straight to my mom and dad. I was like, guess what? We're having a baby, and it's a boy, so you can pass down your name forever and ever, right? And, and I wanted to tell them that news. Why? Because it was good. But sometimes when I talk about Christianity, I feel like it's like telling somebody they, has, they have cancer. Hey, by, hey, by the way, uh, you know, Christ loves you, like, uh, you know. It's like you're telling them they have cancer or something. It feels that way to me. And so that's why for a lot of us, if you're like me, we're constantly apologizing for being Christians. Right? Have you ever done that? You're like, hey, man, like, I ain't one of those Christians, man. I, you, know, I, I, you know, I drink wine. You know, I, 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 I drink wine. I enjoy my wine. I watch Game of Thrones. I'm not like one of those, like, crazy Christians, you know, who doesn't enjoy TV, right? I don't live in a cave and just pray all day. I actually have a life. Like, and you're constantly apologizing for Christ and for, for loving him. And so when we combine all these reasons and more, we naturally think that the gospel is repulsive to the world. We naturally think we'll be persecuted for it. And that is true. Jesus says we will be persecuted for it. And in fact, if you look at the passage before in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So he's telling us, yes, you will be persecuted. But look at what he follows that passage with. He says, yes, there will be a time where you're persecuted. But then there will be a time where you will be salt and light. And salt and light, mind you, are very uh, desirable condiments, right? Salt was used to, to, uh, to keep meats preserved, right? So you could keep them longer. They didn't have refrigeration. Salts were used to make meats flavorful. Light was used to draw in wanderers from the outside. Light was used so you can see things in your home. Lights and salts are things that you want. And so Jesus says, yes, you will be persecuted. But remember, Christianity is wonderful. People will love it. People, it's beautiful, it's attractive, it's wonderful, and don't be afraid to share it. Don't hide your lanterns under a bowl. Don't lose your saltiness. Like, continuously be a Christian and be sharing your faith with people. Look, let me try to illustrate this for you uh, in a very, very kind of simple but childful, kind of childlike way, okay? Uh, you know, I grew up in Hawaii, as many of you know. And if you don't know, Hawaii is one of the most multi-ethnic uh, states in all of America, okay? Uh, my, my best friend was Puerto Rican, half Puerto Rican, half Chinese. My other best friend was half white, half Japanese. Uh, my other best friend was like German, Russian, Hawaiian, Chinese, Japanese. He was like everything the world had to offer, right? All in one person. And so, you know, me being full-blooded Korean, okay, full-blooded Korean American, I always felt like out of the loop. I, I wanted something else, right? I was like, well, why don't I have something else? But so one of the things was, right, I wasn't proud to be Korean. I wasn't proud to be Korean American. So I remember this one, and one of the reasons why is because we had this dish, okay? And if you're, uh, you know, if you know, Korean Americans have this dish, or Koreans have a dish called kimchi, okay? And kimchi, if you don't know, is wonderful, tastes great. It's like this pickled cabbage, rotten pickled cabbage, okay? It's like fermented for days. Uh, but when you open it up, it smells like death, okay? I mean, I, I kid you not, it smells horrible, right? 
So I remember telling my mom, mom, please do not pack me kimchi for lunch. I don't want to bring this to school because all of my friends don't know what it is. And if, I, if they see the kimchi, they're going to make fun of me. They're, I'm not going to have any friends. Like, do you want me to have friends? Then don't send me to school with kimchi, please. But I remember one day my grandmother packed me lunch for school. And lo and behold, I opened up my lunch and there it is, kimchi in my lunch. And so I, I'm like, I'm, I try to take it out quickly and hide it. But my friends see my plate. And they're like, hey, Eric, what is that? And I was like, oh, it's nothing. Like, you don't want to. And they were like, no, 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 what is that? And I was like, well, it's this Korean thing called kimchi. Like, it, it's kind of, it smells really bad. You don't want me. They were like, no, 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 just, just, just eat it. And so I opened it up. And lo and behold, of course, it smelled like death, right? Like, just, it's just like, you know, right into their nostrils. And some of them, of course, they were like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. Like, why did you fart in my face, Eric? Like, what is this, right? But there were also a handful of friends who were like, hey, can I try it? Can I just sample a little bit of it? So I was like, yeah, sure. Here, why don't you taste? And they tried it. They were like, dude, this is amazing. They were like, dude, can you actually bring me some tomorrow? And I was like, well, yeah, sure, I'll bring you some. So I asked my grandma, hey, can you pack? And so I would actually bring kimchi to school, and I would start passing it out to people. In fact, I almost thought of one day trying to sell kimchi and trying to make a little business of my own so I could get extra on top of my allowance. And you see, I know, I know this is childish. I told you it's childish, right? I'm comparing the gospel to kimchi now, okay? But, but, but it, it's, it's similar in, in some sense, right? We think the gospel is just repulsive. I'm going to be persecuted for it. It's the worst thing, right? But then in reality, when you read the scriptures, when you see Jesus, it's beautiful. It's attractive. It's like salt and it's light and it draws you in. It draws you into itself. We forget how beautiful and amazing and desirable the gospel really is and how much people need to hear about the love of Christ, how much they need Christ and his Holy Spirit to renew and regenerate their hearts. Look, our, oftentimes our culture and ourselves, we, we point to the crusades, we point to our views on sexuality, we point to our exclusivity of Jesus Christ when it comes to salvation, but we've forgotten just how beautiful and wonderful our Christian faith really is. You know, let me just take one concept, for example, amidst a variety, uh, 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 just a myriad of examples, okay? But one example is this, right? Have you ever realized that the concept of universal human rights is something right out of our scriptures? It's not something that's self-evident to every human being. Listen to what Larry Taunton says. He's a writer and apologist of the Christian faith, and he says this. He's, he's talking about a book that he had just released called The Grace Effect, and, um, and this is his quote. He says, a statement like that, and he's talking about the Declaration of Independence that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, uh, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. He says this only makes sense within a Christian context. That is to say, what is self-evidential about the equality of man? Like, what's so self-evident about that? In fact, if you look at our society, you look at science, you look at culture, everything says that man is unequal. Right, we're created unequally. In fact, that's what science is, natural selection. There are some creatures that are created with more stuff to survive in our nature. Therefore, they will make it. It's not about helping the poor, helping the oppressed. It's never been about that for science. And so he says, what, what, what is self-evidential about the equality of man? Nowhere outside of the West holds these views. We believe that because we've been heavily influenced by the Judeo-Christian worldview because the only thing self-evidential about man is his inequality. Social, physical, intellectual, there are massive inequalities. So what does a statement like the one found in our Declaration of Independence mean? In some spiritual sense, men are created equal, and it only makes sense if there is a God. 
this is only true if Christianity is true. In fact, Christianity is the one that brought this to its fullest, to its fullest thing. Larry Taunton, he goes on to talk about in his book that he says, Ever, average person who calls themselves Christian, three times more likely to give time and money. Average evangelical Christian, ten times more likely. Okay? We didn't even mention the freeing of the slaves. We didn't mention the civil rights movement led by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Christian and, and did these things out of his Christian beliefs. But, but we didn't even mention those things. You see, without Christianity, life would actually be worse. And in fact, in, the, in his book, The Grace Effect, that's what he talks about. He says, have you ever wondered what a world would look like where atheism was the only thing you, you had versus a Christian, uh, a Christian worldview? And he said, you don't have to imagine that. That's actually here in history. We have evidence of it. He says, take, take for example, the Eastern European states. The Eastern European states were communist. They ripped out religion. They replaced it with secularism and atheism. And guess where it got them? There's no love. There's no grace. There's no none of that. He says, in, in, he says, in short, the kind of world the atheist would give us is a world without Christianity. Cold, pitless, and graceless. He basically argues, look, do you understand how much Christianity has given to us in terms of our views of the poor and the oppressed? You know, have you, like, I've been reading through the Old Testament again just for my, my personal devotion times. And do you know how many times I come across God punishing people? And you think, oh, man, God's a punishing God. Like, how dare he punish me? Do you know what he's punishing the Israelites for? Like, this is like 50% of the time, okay? At least 50% of the time, you know what he's punishing them for? For not helping the poor and the oppressed. He's like, how dare you forget about the poor and oppressed? You know, every other religion, every other culture says the poor and the oppressed, you know what they, you know, they're cursed. They sinned. They did something wrong in their lives. They deserve it. Christianity says, no, 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 no. I want you to help them. In fact, I'll punish you if you don't help them. Because my heart is for them. Where do you think we get that from? We get that from Christ. We get that from his scriptures. This is our gospel. This is our faith. This is our God that we worship. We worship a God who holds all humans in equal view, who has put his image in them. And that's why he loves them. That's why he cares for them. That's why every single person has human rights because of our God. Look at how Jesus says we respond to persecution, though. He says this in our passage. He says in verse 13 and 16, he says something like this. He says, we lose our saltiness. And then he says, we hide our lanterns under a bowl. That's how, we, that's how we navigate this cultural context is we actually take our faith and we hide it or we lose our saltiness. So let me talk a little bit about how we actually go about losing our saltiness and hiding our lanterns under a bowl. Here's the first way we do that. It's by actually hiding our faith. How many of you have been in here where you've gone to work and people have asked you what you've done on the weekend and all you can say is, oh, like, I, you know, I just hung out with friends. But in reality, you were serving the church. You were loving Jesus. You were doing all these Christian things, but you didn't want to share. Why? Because, again, of all the reasons I mentioned. You literally just hide your faith. You don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Here's a second way in which we, we go about losing our saltiness or hiding our lanterns in the bowl. We say things like this. We, we end up changing our theology. Scholars and pastors and, 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 and all, all sorts of people are... are, are are guilty of this. We change our theology because we don't think people like it. And so, for example, the doctrine of hell. Like, that's a hard, hard doctrine that the scriptures talk about. It's a hard doctrine. Let's not be, let's, let's be real about that. And yet, some people say, hey, you know what? Because we don't like that, let's just change it. Let's just present the universal Christ who loves everyone, who at the end of time, everyone will be uh, with the Father. And so we change our theology. Or, or we say, hey, you know what? You, you don't like uh, the fact that, um, you know, 
sexual purity before marriage, you know, let's just change that. Let's just say, you know, it's okay to do all of those things. We end up changing our theology, and what we end up doing is we change our beliefs so much that we have to ask ourselves, are we still even Christian at that point? Have we lost so much of our saltiness, in other words, that we're no longer salt? Here's the last way and the third way we lose our saltiness and hide our lamps in their bowl. It's, it's by covering the grace of Christ with an overemphasis on truth. See, for some of us, we go the opposite way, right? We don't change our theology, but what we do is we take the truth and we just slam people over the heads with it. You ever see those, you, you know, those preachers at UW or at Capitol Hill or, or in downtown Seattle who are just holding these signs of burn in hell, accept Christ, or you'll be burning in hell forever, and you got to come and love Jesus, and because of it, right? What they're doing is they're actually covering the grace of Christ with this truth that basically says, believe or you'll die, we're going to make you, we're going to force you to believe by putting basically a gun to your head that says hell on it. And we're going to force you to believe. And what they've effectively done is they've covered the grace and the love that Jesus Christ has to offer for them as well. See, Jesus doesn't say in this passage, scare people into loving me. Hold a spiritual gun to their head and tell them to love me. He doesn't say that. He says, be like salt. Be like light. Lure them in. Like, it's desirable. Like, they want it. You, you should want this. Like, just show them what it is and they'll want it. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we, we, we read this, right? He says this, For though I am free from all, I have made my ser- myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew. And then he says, to those under the law, I became under the law. To those outside the law, I became like outside the law. He says, to the weak, I became weak. He says, uh, you know, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul is saying this, look, you don't scare people into Christianity. You invite them. You win them. You actually show them how amazing the gospel is and allow them to choose Christ. Paul will become whatever, do whatever necessary to win people to the gospel. Paul says, I don't hide my faith. I don't change my theology so that it fits in with culture. I don't beat people up over the head with my Bible. He says, I, I become all things so I can just win people to Christ. Christ wants people who love loves him, not, not people we've scared people into, into loving him. So here's our second point. That leads us into our second point, the directions for being salt and light. How do we actually go about being salt and light? And I think Jesus is very explicit here for us. Here's the first, here's the first sub-point under that. It's this. It's just show. It's to show the love of Christ. It's to show the gospel. Because, right, it, you, you know this, right? When you were in kindergarten or elementary school, you, you had this thing called show and tell, right, where you'd bring in your favorite toy. And you not only got to tell people about your, about your thing or about whatever it is that you like, but you got to show them what it was really about so that they could experience what that was all about. And that's what I'm saying here is Jesus tells you, in order to win people to the gospel, you actually have to show them what the gospel is. You have to actually have to live it out, right? Look at what he says. He says, um, he says in the same way, in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that, so he's telling us what the light is now, okay? He's saying, so that they may see what? Your good works. They can see your good works. You see, so many times Christians, they preach the gospel, they preach the gospel, they preach the gospel, they hit people over the head with their Bible, and yet they never show them the love and the grace. They never show them what Christianity is all about through their good works. So look, how do you win people to the gospel? Well, let me ask you, how do you win a sale? If you're a salesperson in here, you know how to win a sale. You show that your product is more superior than all the other products. 
How do you win a promotion? Some of you in here maybe got a promotion recently. How do you win a promotion? You show that you were the superior candidate above all the other candidates that were looking for your position. How do you win people to the gospel? You show them that Christ is superior above all things. How do you show them? Through your life, through your good works, through what you do. Here's what I'm getting at. If you want to show people the love of God, it begins with you. It begins with our church. It begins by making yourself, in some sense, okay, better. Right now, you take parts truths of, 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 of the Bible, you take parts of the truths of the gospel, and you apply them. You don't take all the truths, and you don't apply all of them. You don't forgive, you hate, you're, you're bitter always, you don't, you don't extend love, you don't extend grace, you're angry at people, you're not extending any sort of love. And it begins there. It begins by making yourself better. It begins by us making new life better. Let me give you an example. You know, uh, some time ago, Chick-fil-A, if you guys don't know Chick-fil-A, well, you've probably been living under a rock somewhere because Chick-fil-A is the greatest chicken sandwich of all time, right? We have one right up the street. After service, just go eat one, okay? I promise you, you will, you will thank me later, okay? Get their spicy chicken, okay? Um, but uh, some time ago, uh, Chick-fil-A experienced its first big competition, Back in those days, they had no competition. No one was standing up to Chick-fil-A. But this one restaurant opened up called Boston uh, Chicken. Okay? And they were Chick-fil-A's first real competition. And this got the Chick-fil-A board very, very scared. And so Boston uh, Chicken ultimately became a company known as Boston Market, which I think most of us know. But Boston Market ultimately went out of business. Why? Because of Chick-fil-A. Now, during this board meeting, this pivotal board meeting, all the board members were saying things like this. They were like, we've got to grow faster. In order to beat uh, Boston Chicken, we've got to grow faster. And the way we're going to grow faster is by more advertising, more PR campaigns. The, we have to adjust our language. We have to invest into advertising. We have to tell, spread the word. We have to do all these things. And they were arguing back and forth. And finally, the CEO of Chick-fil-A slammed his fist down. He was like, stop talking, everybody. He says, we're going to do what we've always done from the very beginning. We're going to make our chicken sandwiches just better. We're going to make it better than everyone else. And you know, from the very inception of Chick-fil-A, they've, they've utilized very little in advertising. They've, they, they've spent very little on advertising. Why? Because they believe if they make their product better, naturally word will spread itself. In fact, you talk to any advertising person in here, that's the best form of advertising. It's not commercials. It's not social media. It's when word of mouth, people say, wow, chicken sandwich, amazing. You come eat here now. Like, very simple. It's just when people tell other people because their product's amazing. And he said, we're not going to do a PR campaign. We're not going to try to grow faster. He said, we're simply going to stick to what we've been doing, which is make our chicken sandwiches, make our customer experience better and better and better and better. And guess what? They beat out Boston Market. They beat out all of their competition. Chick-fil-A is still growing. They're still opening up stores nationwide. Why? Because they just focus in on themselves. They're just making their product better. And this is what I'm saying. For a lot of us in Christianity, we believe, okay, in order to, you know, to evangelize, we got to make our message better. we got to craft our message. we got to do the four spiritual laws of Christianity, know how to talk about Christianity. No, 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 no. Here's the first thing. Just make yourself better. Start living out the commands of Christ. Start serving and loving the people in this church. Start serving and loving the church. Start, start living out your faith. Show people Christianity. Don't tell them about Christianity yet. Look, what do you do when you want to share about a restaurant, right? Let's just say you had an amazing experience at a sushi restaurant and you want to tell your friends about it. Do you go and you start with all the logical reasons why they should go eat at that restaurant? 
No, a lot of you, what do you do? You just say, hey, man, you got to come and eat at this new sushi restaurant. I just, I just ate at it. It's amazing. And they'll be like, why? And be like, I don't know why. It just tastes good. Just come and eat yourself, right? And that's what evangelism looks like, honestly. Evangelism is not giving everybody the reasons why they should believe. Evangelism is simply saying, hey, come. Come and see what I've seen. Come and taste what I've eaten. Come and just see what our Lord and Savior has done in my life. Come and see what our Lord and Savior is doing in my church. Come and see what he's doing. Just taste and see how real he is. That's all it is. I'm telling you, you will not get more people to eat at a restaurant if you can explain to them all the little nuances of why this restaurant is better. All you have to say is come and eat. You trust me. Come and eat. Taste and see how good it is. Friends, it begins, evangelism begins with how you live your life. If you are living a hypocritical life, or if you're living a life that's two-faced, if you're living a life that's very different than what the scriptures tell you to live, then I'm telling you your evangelism will fall flat on its face. People will look at Christianity and be like, it's just a hoax. People are just pretending to love Jesus. I, I, I see right through them. They just pretend like the Holy Spirit changes their lives. They don't really change their lives. Here's a second aspect to tell people about Christianity. So definitely you show people Christianity by the way you live, but you also have to tell them about Christianity. You also have to at some point share your faith. You know, there's this famous quote thrown around in Christianity, and it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's actually not developed by him. We don't know who it's developed by, but it goes something like this. It says, preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words. And that is not what I'm talking about here. I'm not saying you just simply love people, love people, love people, and never talk about the name of Jesus. I'm saying at some point, you show them the love, and then you tell them about Christ. You tell them the simple truth that you already know so well, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's all it requires of you. It, all it requires of you is to show them the love, to show them the grace that you've already experienced, to tell them what little you know, and invite them into that experience, to invite them into a relationship with Christ. That's all. You don't need to know all the nuances. You don't need to know all the arguments. You don't need to know all those things. What little you know, if you applied it, I'm telling you, we would reach people. This is why here at our church, at New Life Fellowship, we don't emphasize making you guys know more about the gospel. Of course, we want to educate you. Of course, we want you to be biblically savvy. But at the same time, that's not the pinnacle of Christian growth. This is why in our community groups, we open up our Bibles, we read our Bibles, but what we ultimately want you to do is to regurgitate the sermon. Because guess what? After today, you're going to leave these doors, no matter if I preach my heart out, a lot of you will forget the message. And that's okay. That's just memory, how it is. That's how it works. But at community groups, you get to talk about it again. You get to apply it into your life. We don't need Christians who know more things. It's about applying what you already know. If you applied what little you already know, like, I know you know. Forgive people. Don't hate people. Don't have bitterness. Just take that and apply it. That you, you could do a whole lifetime applying that one principle into your life. Oh, hey, you know, just be generous. We need to be generous to the poor and the oppressed. Take that one principle and apply it for the rest of your life. I'm telling you, it will take a lifetime for you to apply that truth. Just take what little you know and apply it. What little you know about the gospel, share it with people. Just share what you already know. And here's a third and final thing you can do for people. Do anything and everything for them. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
He's saying, look, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Here's what Paul is saying. Uh, there's a pastor named Craig Rochelle, who's a pastor of Life Church out in Oklahoma. He, he, he kind of wraps up this passage in a very simple, simple way. He says this, do anything short of sin to reach people for Jesus. Do anything short of sin to reach people for Christ. Basically, yeah, don't go out and get drunk and gamble, you know, get addicted to gambling so you can reach people for Christ. Of course, don't sin while you're reaching people. But he said, do anything. Like, become anything. Like, talk to people. Like, learn about, like, snowboarding. If you don't like snowboarding, but you know a friend who likes snowboarding, so you want to learn about snowboarding so you can connect with them, then do that. Like, do anything short of sin to reach people for the gospel. See, so many of you and, and, and really good-intentioned people come up to me and they're like, how do I evangelize? How do I talk to my friends about Christ? And I'm telling you, this is the principle. Do anything and everything. Look, right now, you might not know the specific steps to getting your promotion, but I know you know what to do. Do anything and everything to get that promotion. You know, uh, you don't know the exact steps to making more money in your current situation, but I know you know this. Do anything and everything you can to make more money. You know the how to do that and so i'm saying the same thing here you know what to do which is do anything and everything to save people to the gospel if it means driving an hour to pick up a friend to invite them to church do it if it means praying on your knees an hour a day so that you can save one for the gospel then do it if it means you know whatever it is just do it do anything and everything because listen, what would you do for a million dollars? I know what you would do for a million dollars. Because I've asked some of you what you would do for a million dollars. And some of you had said, I would do nasty things. I would eat something nasty for a million dollars. You would do anything and everything for a million dollars. How far would you go to get into the perfect school or get your kid into the perfect school? You would do anything and everything for that, would you not? How far would you go to get a new pair of shoes, for goodness sakes? I know you young people, man. You guys stand in that Nike line or whatever, I don't know, you know, uh, hype beast lines or whatever, right, to get that new pair of shoes. Hours. I see people tenting for hours on end just to get a new pair of shoes. How far would you go for the gospel? And Paul is saying you should go as far as it, it means necessary to save even one. You know, we're going to study this in the book of Philippians uh, when we get there. We're, we're going to be uh, entering into the book of Philippians, but... There's this really interesting story where Paul thanks the Lord for basically coming upon the Philippian church. But if you go back to the book of Acts and read how he got there, you know, in order to save one person, do you know what Paul had to do? He had to be beaten up. He had to be in prison. And guess what? He saves one jailer at the end of it all. God closes all of these doors to these different, like, places. And he's like, why are you doing that? Because you want me to plant a church here in Philippi? And then he ends up getting thrown in prison. He ends up getting beaten up. And then at the end of it, he saves one jailer. And he says, well, praise be to God for that one person. Paul will do anything and everything just for one. And the Bible tells us to do the same, to have the same mindset. Because guess what? More than a million dollars, more than a new house, more than a job promotion, you already know what matters most in this world. It's people. People are worth investing into. You know why? Because their souls are eternal. It's the only thing that will last forever. It's their souls. More than anything in this world, more than diamonds or rubies or whatever have you, whatever treasures you have, the human soul is worth so much more than that. And we need to be investing our time into people. 
So that moves us into our third point, the true source of salt and light. How do we go about getting the motivation now? How do we go about actually changing from the inside out? How do we actually go about making ourselves better so we can show and tell this gospel news? And here's what uh, the, the gospel writer of John tells us in chapter 8, verses 12. He tells us this. Jesus says something interesting. He doesn't say that we are the light in this gospel. He says that he is the light. Look what it says in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, what Matthew is telling us in this gospel in chapter 5, he's saying, you are the light, of course. But basically, if we put these two passages together, you're just a reflection of the light. You're not the true source of the light. You're not the Savior. Jesus is. But in order for you to be light, you actually have to connect yourself to the light source. It's like this, right? I remember driving around in L.A. where it was much sunnier than here in Seattle, right? Uh, it was much sunnier in L.A. And I remember there were times where I'd be driving. My wife would have her phone out, and she would actually reflect the sun right into my eyes as I'm driving. And I would tell her, woman, do you want us to die? Do you want us to meet our maker right now? Because we can if you want. Stop shining that light in my, my eyes. And what I'm saying is we're kind of like this phone. We just reflect the light from Christ. We are not the light. We are not the saviors but we are reflectors of that light. And in order for us to reflect the light, we have to be connected to the light. In other words, here's what I'm saying. You have to, in order to be transformed, be connected to the one who gives life. If you want to provide life to other people, you have to be fed life first. And you have to be reading your word. You have to be in prayer. You have to be open to the Spirit's work in your life. There are people in your life right now, I guarantee it, who are rebuking you who are saying you are not living rightly and you are just ignoring them, cutting them out and not listening to them. And I'm saying in order for you to be connected to the light, you have to be open not only to prayer and the word, but the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's three things that I believe will happen to you when you allow Jesus to connect you in this way. When you allow Jesus to be the light of your life. Here's the first thing Jesus will do. Jesus will reveal to you the truth. He will reveal to you the truth about who you are, in other words. He will reveal that you are a sinner. He will reveal that you are children of wrath. He will reveal to you that you have sinned in so many ways that on the outside you tell people, oh, I love my wife, but at home you treat her like garbage. You, you, you know, you, he's going to show you that, you know, you say you love your kids, but you treat your kids like garbage at home. You say you love your friends, but you treat your friends like garbage. He's going to show you all the sinfulness in your life, and he's going to reveal that truth to you, and it's going to make you feel uncomfortable at times, because that's what light does. Women, I know so many of you in here, because my wife does this all the time. If you go to a movie theater, and you, and maybe that's not women only, but men too, okay? Men, you, you could probably do this too, but... You go to a movie theater, you're going to watch a drama, you're going to watch something like a tearjerker, you go into the movie, you start crying your eyes out, right? You're crying for like an hour straight, and, and, and when you come out of the movie theater, you go straight into the bathroom, right? You go into the bathroom, you go underneath the lights, and all of a sudden you see all your mascara is gone. All your makeup is just, all your blush is just flowing down your face. And then you go outside, you go to your husband or your boyfriend, you yell at your boyfriend because you're like, how come you never told me my face looked like this, right? I had to find out for myself, like after the light was, you do that. This is what light does. It reveals to you who you are. And it will reveal uncomfortable truths to you. And here, here's another truth that Jesus will reveal to you. One of the truths that Jesus will reveal to you is this, that this, this life is not all there is. That there is a kingdom to come after this one. And you have to remind yourself of this uncomfortable truth daily. That your jobs are meaningless in light of his glory and grace. 
that this world is temporary, that this world is not your home, that you are in fact an alien and foreigner of this place, that you're just passing through, that you are just missionaries to this world. And you have to remind yourself of that truth daily. You know, I'm actually, I kind of think about it, but I'm, I'm actually quite a morbid person. I didn't realize this until I was preparing this sermon. But, you know, whenever I go back home to Hawaii, I always visit my grandfather who's passed away now for some time and I go and visit him in his grave uh, at, the, at, 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 you know, at the cemetery. And I, and, I, and I do this all the time. I don't know why I do this, but I'll, I'll look around at all the other cemetery uh, you know, plots and I'll look at all the different names and of all the people. And I remember specifically my grandfather was a veteran and he fought in um, you know, the Korean War and whatnot and he fought in multiple wars and so he's buried with all these other veterans. And I remember walking around that veteran kind of graveyard and looking over and I saw... Man, like two-star generals just in the ground. I saw, I saw three-star admirals just in the ground. I saw all these people of high importance and, and of accolades. And, and it's crazy because in this life, they, they were important. They had made a life for themselves. People knew them, and yet now they're not here. And all the wealth in the kingdom that they had built is nothing now. They couldn't take it with them. And that's what Jesus will do to you. He will reveal truth to you and say, look at truth. This life is not all there is, and you need to be working for the kingdom of God. But here's a second thing that Jesus will do. He'll not only reveal to you truth, but he'll also heal your heart. See, when I, uh, you know, as you know, many of you guys live here and you guys have lived here for a long time. But you know that the sun is so precious to us here in Seattle. Right? When the sun comes out, it's like, man, it's like a new year has begun, right? We have this cloud of darkness and then it sits for a while and then when the sun comes out, Right, all the hippies emerge, right, with their, with their no shoes and their, you know, shorts and, like, it's still 60 degrees, but they're, like, tank tops and they just sit out in the sun, right? I remember at UW, that, that would happen all the time, right? Uh, you know, it'd be, like, 40 and overcast for some time and then the sun would emerge and it'd be 60 or something, right? And everybody would come out with their shorts and their flip-flops and their tank tops and they'd just be chilling. And, and in L.A., we'd be like, what the heck are you guys doing? You guys are crazy, man. 60 degrees, we've got to be, you know, wrapped up in... But one of the reasons why Seattleites do that is because they know something. They know that light actually can heal you, right? Does it not? You can be in those tremendous times of darkness, and the sun comes out, and you just step out into the sun, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, my life is better. Everything is better, in fact. The light will actually heal you at times. Light has restorative properties, in other words. And this is true of Jesus as well. See, Jesus will reveal truth to you, but he will also heal your hearts. He'll also come alongside you and say, look, I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. I've died upon the cross for your sins, the one that I've revealed to you. I've paid the penalty for those sins. And guess what? When Jesus Christ comes with his light, he will also heal your hearts. Do you know why you can't love people? Do you know why you don't evangelize? It's because you're so centered upon yourself. And the reason why you're centered upon yourself is because guess what? You're broken. And broken people can only look at themselves. I've talked about this before, but imagine an athlete. Imagine a football player. Two football players colliding together, and both of them are injured. You know, one grabs his knee, the other one grabs his elbow or his shoulder or whatever, and they're moaning in agony and pain. You know what the strangest thing in the world would be? is if one of the football players got up, even though his leg was shattered and broken, and came up to the other one and was like, how are you doing, man? You'd never see that. Why? Because most of the time, the football players on the ground screaming and yelling in agony for themselves. People in pain and in brokenness can only look at themselves. And in order for you to allow the love of Christ, in order for you to be evangelistic, in order for you to look outwards to start caring for other people, you need to allow the love of Christ to heal your hearts. 
You need Jesus to reveal that truth, but you also need Jesus' light of love to come and tell you, I've paid the penalty for your sins. I've taken the penalty upon the cross for you, and I love you. And I want to give you grace, and I want to give you mercy, and I want to heal your heart so that you can look outwards and begin loving people the way I love them. Here's the last thing. Jesus will warm your hearts, and this is very similar to what we talked about. Jesus will reveal your sins. He'll heal your hearts, but that grace and that love will warm your hearts. See, for so many of us, the reason why we don't love people is because we have this calloused and cold heart. And we need the gospel warmth to really warm our hearts once again, to melt our cold and dead and lifeless hearts, to begin beating again for people. Because right now, you're so self-centered. You're caring only about yourself. You need God's love to wake in your heart again, to start beating for other people in your life. And that only comes when you understand his truth, but you understand that he heals you and that he loves you. Jesus Christ, through his amazing gospel, through his amazing grace, will warm your hearts so that it begins beating for people. Uh, you know, I was talking to a, a dog expert once, and this is kind of a silly illustration or example, but I was talking to a dog expert once, and she was telling me about a number of dogs that she had kind of taken care of, but there was one dog in specific that she had this really big heart for. And the reason why is because she adopted this dog from a kennel, and only later on did she realize that this dog was always angry and aggressive. I mean, whenever there was a, a, a stranger that would come up, you know, she would not smell, sniff the hand or allow that person to pet. She would snap. She would bite. She would bark. She was very aggressive. And so early on, there was, uh, there was only so much she could do. She applied all these different techniques, but she said the one thing that she did, the one thing, of course, there were a lot of things she did, but the one main thing she did was she just allowed the dog to absorb her love. And she said over the course of time, as she began loving this dog, as she began sharing her love with this dog, this unconditional love with this dog, the dog's heart began to change. The dog's heart began to be warmed. This dog's heart began to be open to people. This dog began allowing people to pet him or to pet her. And you see, it's only because of the love of this owner that the dog's heart was warmed in some sense. And she was able to be open once again. And you see, for so many of you in this place, you're angry a lot. There are so many of you in this place who deal with anger and bitterness and hatred. And the reason why, honestly, is because you're broken. And you put on this defense mechanism and you snap at people. And you snap and you don't care about anybody and how they're, they're getting hurt or their feelings. And what you need, again, is the love of Christ to come and to warm your heart. And to remember that this life is not about you, but to remember that Christ came and loved you. He made you his child through the death and his resurrection. For you and for you alone. Friends, we, we come to Christ for his light, for his love, and for his gospel truth. Amen? Let's pray.